with cries from clergy and laymen. Noel, they all shouted, and Noel again. Then the knights gave gifts and offered good wishes. Here, here, they called out and handed them round, competing for presents with play and forfeits. Ladies laughed loudly, though they lost the game. Nor did winners whinge, you may well believe. A merry muddle they made till dinner-time. When washed well, each one went to sit at their place, noblest first, selecting seats to suit their rank. Graceful Guinevere, goodly queen, was seated in the middle of the dais, adorned and draped with a costly canopy curtained each side, with Toulouse red silk and Tarsia tapestries, embroidered and bordered with bright baubles, well worth the wealth one would want to pay. But the queen, most lovely there, looked on all with eyes of grey. Was there ever one more fair? No man, in truth, might say. Now, Arthur would not eat until all were served. Youth lent a light spirit to his lordly heart. He did not like to loll or lie about for long. His brain was busy, his blood beat robustly. Besides, he kept accustomed to hear a tale at feasts of fine feats and far-flung adventures before he would savour something from his salver, so he might be told of some moment of marvel that champions of chivalry achieved with arms, or until a quester came to challenge his knights and join their jousting and jeopardise their life against another's, each allowing fortune to favour him with advantage in the field. While at Camelot this was the king's custom— for each festival with his fair knights in their high hall. His face set proudly he waits, standing stalwart and tall, a strong king in his estate, merry with one and all. So he stands, the stern young king, and waits there at the high table talking of courtly trifles. Next to Guinevere sits the good Sir Gawain, Agravain a la Dieu main at her other side, both knights of renown and nephews of the king. Bishop Baldwin, above them, heads the board, placed to eat next to Yvain, son of Urien. These men of distinction dined on the dais. Other trusty men take seats at side tables. The first course is signalled by trumpets sounding, brightly hung with their bannerets and blazons. Then comes a drumming din and noble pipes awaken, warbling in a wild clamour. To hear them stirs stern men and lifts their souls. A feast is brought forth of most noble food, so many dishes of delicious dainties that is scarcely space to place the silver salvers on cloth. Each lord takes as he pleases his delight, nothing loath. For two a dozen dishes, beer and bright wine, or both... I'll say nothing more about the meal. Be certain nothing was needed or missing. Anon a new noise was heard nearby, one that would allow their lord leave to take his food. Scarcely had the strains of stirring pipes subsided and the first course been served as was custom to the court, when the hall doors heaved apart. A horrid horseman entered whose height exceeded every man. Broad-backed and brawny, big-thighed and square, his loins were so long and large he seemed half-troll, or, I say, at least the largest man alive. And yet he was a hugely handsome horseman, for although his body, back and breast were grim, his stomach, hips and haunches they were slim.' 
in all a man finely formed with features sharp and clean. Yet his hue turned men aghast, a strange, unearthly sheen. As his form and face went past, it was entirely green. Green were both the garments and the grinning man. Green, a coat that clung to him, cut tight and close, to cover all a comely cloak in green, fur-lined, fashioned in one piece, fair fringes finely trimmed. Lightly on his shoulders to show his locks lay his hood, the same green hue that was the hose that clung to his calves with clinking spurs below. They shone gold on slippers of embroidered silk. No armoured iron shod his shanks. Truly all his...